The more you learn, the more you realise there is still to learn. This is Sparking Connections, a podcast where two education enthusiasts teach each other about their respective fields of study. My name is Kimberly Wardle, and I have a degree in microbiology from the University of Surrey. And my name is Esme Beaumont, and I'm currently studying for an MPhil in English Studies at the University of Cambridge. Hi everyone, welcome back to Sparking Connections. This week Hello. we have a science episode, my favourite episodes, obviously. Um, and it's a bit weird for me and Esme because we haven't recorded together in a while. Uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> we kind of recorded a bunch and then Esme went off to uni again and we haven't recorded since. So uh, <laughs> here we are. And today we're talking about uh, public health in the context of wartime and this is going to be kind of a two-parter there's a episode now on the historical aspect of public health and wartime and at the end of the episode we'll talk about next time so are you ready to get started i am okay so i first wanted to make sure that i point out i wrote this at the very top of my list was that science and the military have some heavy language crossover um, and we've discussed this before, how how we, we like the use of science metaphors for the military, but we don't really like military metaphors for science. But mm-hmm. this is reasoned, I guess, that the reason that people come up with this is because a lot of science developments have occurred as a result of the pressures of war. So right. the need to have better health, the need to have better technology, the need to have lots of different things to basically make you the winner and not the loser, right? Um, Although being the winner doesn't necessarily mean that you don't sustain a huge number of casualties. In the the spirit, in the spirit of making sure we're all on the same page, um, I looked up a brief history of public health and they said that in the UK in particular, it occurred in four to five waves, four waves. But then they were like, but there's also a fifth wave. So I'm like, well, it's five waves then, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, you'll be interested to note that we didn't really have much in the way of public health ideology until the 19th century, which okay. I feel like is quite far in our sort of human existence. Yeah, that's a very long... Th- that, that's a whole 19 centuries before. Well, you don't say. <laughs> um, and it started off with things like making sure we had drinking water, sewage treatment, um, working conditions, because at that time, mm-hmm. um, I think they were starting to... They definitely had workhouses, but they were starting to like realise that maybe you shouldn't put children to work in coal mines and you know, use toxic chemicals in factories and things like that, right? Mm. Um, And Jon Snow was the founder of epidemiology. He was the one that found out that there was a cholera outbreak stemming from that single water pump and he took the Uh handle off the water pump. We've all, I mean, uh, as a scientist, we've all heard of it, but I feel like in general, people people know um, about that guy. Um, And that happened in London. So it really became much more of a, a discussion, health and, you know, we finally started to understand microbiology in terms of like little tiny particles are infecting you. Um, they didn't necessarily know what those little tiny particles 
looked like per se, but they knew that there were little tiny particles there that were doing damage. Um, And then the second wave occurred in the early 1900s, and that was the advent of antibiotics and vaccinations or the the introduction of more rigorous uh, programs of antibiotic treatment and vaccinations. And we all know about that. We've talked about that. Look, go and listen to our vaccinations episode if you want to know about that. And then the 1940s to the 1980s was the third wave. Although, as you can see, bit of overlap because, you know, the one wave just it doesn't end and then the next one begin. And in this 40s to 80s time period, it was sort of highlighted that the importance of what your lifestyle choices were was important. So like smoking, alcohol consumption, or like exercising, that kind of stuff. And then the 1960s onwards, it became a lot more of sort of an economic and social factors. So, you know, whether you're able to have access to exercise or able to have access to water that is clean to drink or whatever, sanitation, all that kind of stuff, it became a lot more sort of of a class discussion as well as a sort of everybody uh, public health human discussion um and then this final wave that they didn't want to include but they did anyway is very recent it's about the shared responsibility for health so taking you know taking into account other people's health not just your own making sure that the people around you are healthy to maintain a healthy community and also one health you know making sure the environment is healthy animals are healthy because obviously there are diseases from both of those places that can impact us mm. so public health in general has followed this pattern and interestingly or maybe not so interestingly the us lagged behind us and it wasn't until ah. the early 20th century that they took an interest in public health and formed their sort of non-profit organization equivalents to us um to sort of combat the issues related to public health. And obviously throughout time, public health has been impacted quite severely by war and by human action. So I wrote in my notes, historical wars, colon, loads. There's been so (laughs) many. I, it blew it it shouldn't surprise me but it absolutely blew me away that there were so many wars but there you go um and according to this wikipedia page and i did check the sources and they seemed pretty legit so i'm i'm that's why i said starting in potentially uh 3250 bc ancient egypt first war question mark very unclear but obviously since that time there's been wars to the present day we're seeing you know there's been been with there's been wars all the time um and study of disease during a time of prolonged upheaval between countries or within a country has become its own subsection of field epidemiology so Mm -hmm. you know studying the patterns of diseases out in the world as opposed to mathematically or whatever it's become like war epidemiology has become its own thing which kind of sad really that we need it but Mm. 
it does have a huge impact. However, I wondered if you could think of some issues that might arise when you want to collect data for epidemiology during a time of war. I mean, first off, your priority is going to be not dying from, (laughs) you know, the whole violence thing. Um, So depending on where you live, etc, that's going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. You might not have all that much time to collect data when you are focusing on surviving. Yes. Um, (laughs) If you're working for a particular institution, if you're associated with a university, say, uh, then getting funding for your research, you know, for the materials that you need, for the technology you might need, is going to be difficult if the entire government budget is going to the military. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The the issue of, um, you know, having people to study, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're not just doing surveys and collecting data from sort of, well, first off, if you're collecting data from, if you would usually be collecting data from a particular hospital, well, nothing's running as normal. So that's going to be a challenge. Um, If people are dying, you're going to have a lack of (laughs) of subjects because they're dead. Yes. Unless you are planning specifically to study corpses. Um, I mean, I guess you would you would count the mortality rate in relation to war, like a disease's oh, mortality sure, rate could be compared to its normal mortality rate. Sure. But if you're thinking like, I want to know whether this particular drug works, mm. you kind of need some people to give the drug to. And if they've all died, you're a bit stuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wouldn't be able to do any like trials of anything. You would, <laughs> exactly. You, you can only I think you can only study active infection you can't mm. you can't like test other hypotheses in terms exactly, of like yeah. vaccinations or antibiotics so yeah yeah right. yeah and if you're studying an active disease your priority is going to be curing people not testing all of the different possibilities and seeing which you know you might have something yeah. that you think might be more effective but would take longer well you can't you can't do that you can't just no. experiment no Um, your priority is is saving people right and especially linked to that you know you don't have the resources or the time to even consider other alternatives you yeah like you said you just have to focus on getting the the optimal treatment as soon as possible yeah i suppose another thing is that if your if your research would otherwise rely on another country's um you know institutions resources then it's not just that if you are at war with that country, <laughs> that's going to put a spanner in the works, mm. but also, um, you know, getting supplies to and from, you know, like, you know, planes or boats being intercepted, right, right. or you know, any kind, any of the any sort of political conflict. You may not technically be at war with a particular country, but they might be. It, I don't know. They might be drawing negative attention to themselves if they help you with whatever your yeah your right. study is for example right and even you're gonna have a lack of resources for kinds of reasons yeah exactly and even for like getting resources in to countries that just need resources in general as we'll see in, yeah. in the case study in the next episode you know there's there's going to be blocks in place for security reasons yeah. and for you know whatever reasons to stop people from um, bringing in necessary resources so yeah yeah 
I also wrote that um, data collected could be ambiguous. So like you said, you know, mm. you're, you're rushing to, to cure people. You know, it might not leave time for rigorous research notes and things. There might be sort of gaps or it might be biased or, you know, there might be um, because a lot of people are getting displaced. You, you might, you know, have a patient that you're following up with and then they just disappear or you can't contact them anymore or you know whatever reason so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of issues with this kind of data collection uh, during during war there's uh, there's going to be all sorts of issues but there are a lot of alternative techniques that can be more necessary um you know th there's a a lot of studies done in refugee camps and things like that mm -hmm. so they're obviously quite different populations you know you get a lot of a mixing pot of people that you might not see together so um, drawing from those kind of locations and things like that are, are done so needless to say public health is severely impacted by war in historical times and in modern times um, and I thought it would be also interesting to note that World War II saw huge leaps in science because mm -hmm. obviously that's the war that the UK taught about because we were victorious and all that. Mm. So there was, you know, leaps in chemical pesticides, which reduced mosquitoes, uh, film and photography, which used chemistry at the time. And obviously now it's, it's more digital, um, but also electronic communication. So all these avenues of science were really rapidly developed and are still, you know, used today or their later on counterparts are used today. Yeah. Um, and then also something that brought public health further into the forefront of people's minds was the use of conscription highlighting health problems in the population. So everyone in the UK mm. was patting themselves on the back, being like, yes, us liberals, we've really we've really done it this time. We've we've cured people of all these illnesses. We're so progressive. Our hospitals are fantastic. You know, they had um think to like the pictures that you've seen of tuberculosis clinics where people are bundled up mm. in blankets and sat out on porches and you know they're like yes we've done it we've done it but conscription when people signed up to join the army or you know whatever military service they were signing up to it highlighted that in fact many people in the population I mean many men in the population of the UK weren't actually as healthy as they thought you know, there was a lot of illness and um, various like impacts of illness. So things like uh, like issues with growth or health or respiratory problems or that kind of stuff were all highlighted when they went to sign up to join the military. So it kind of added another layer of our perspective of public health through history. So I wrote a long list of public health problems as a result of war and I thought we could just discuss these and and see if what we can say about them because they're kind of um some of them are self-explanatory some of them you know maybe have a little bit more uh background behind them but so to start off with I've put traveling to new places with a bunch of like subsections so traveling to new places in any instance you're going to experience other disease i feel like this episode is going to be one of me promoting every other episode that we've done because 
I'm going <laughs> to suggest that people, if people are interested in learning more about endemic disease, which in the UK, we did an episode on endemic disease in the UK, you know, if you're, you're going to somewhere from the UK, their endemic diseases are going to be different. Um, endemic being diseases that are native to that place. So if you're traveling to somewhere new, if you're, you know, assigned to somewhere else because the conflict is somewhere else as the uk loves to do we love to assign people to other countries that maybe we shouldn't <laughs> be involved in but either way there <laughs> being you know there's going to be different disease uh profiles there there's also the introduction of disease to native people our diseases are different to other diseases in other places so if you go to that other place you're taking whatever you've got with you. As we've seen with COVID, there's a, there's a real, there's a real inability for people to not spread what they've got. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, I wondered if you could think of any other examples. There's some, his, some quite significant historic examples of uh, disease being spread in this way. Yes, in terms of the colonization of America. Exactly. Um, I don't know precisely which diseases it was. I feel like I at one point did know and have, I don't remember, but um, diseases being spread to Native American people, you know, by European European settlers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was a couple. There was flu. Was um, smallpox one of them? Smallpox. That's what's coming to mind, but... Syphilis, mm. um, which adds a whole other layer of gross yes to, to that um and there was one more probably something like typhoid fever or some kind mm, of been. cholera something like that something water-based basically so yeah uh, we've seen many instances of people taking disease to uh people of other countries and the the main thing that i want to highlight with this point is that I feel like a lot of people think that these people got sick because they're somehow weaker or their immune systems are worse or whatever. But I want to make it explicitly clear that is not the reason that they got sick from these things and died from these diseases like more rapidly than we did, uh, the, than the, the place where they were coming from did. Um, and that's because... They've, their immune systems have never seen the disease before. They have no protection. In the UK, mm -hmm. the diseases that we have, you know, you've grown up in this country, say, and you've been exposed to all the diseases that are endemic to the UK. They've, you know, they've made you ill. They've, you know, made you stay off school. But historically, and through your uh, genetics, your generations of your family have survived these diseases and therefore you, your body knows how to deal with it. Over time, your immune system will improve and the more it's exposed to these, these diseases, the better it becomes at fighting them. If you take that disease to another country that's never seen this disease before, their immune system goes, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> and will have much more severe consequences to that, that population of people because they have no you know, exposure to that disease. It's the same when the European colonizers went to the US and experienced all sorts of other diseases for themselves, mosquito-borne diseases, for example, which we don't see in the UK. 
dengue, West Nile virus, those kind of things, decimated populations of white Europeans. And that was because we hadn't seen those diseases before. We didn't, we didn't have any you know, historical immunity to them. So yeah, to be very clear, giving disease to native people, you need to be super careful about getting your vaccinations, where you're traveling to, what you're sick with when you're traveling, because the disease that you're carrying may be fine to you, may be fine for your you know, community, but taking it to another community is incredibly reckless. An example I can think of in the most basic terms is I, when I lived in America, any cold that made its way around the office, you know, people would have coughs and sniffles and all that kind of stuff. It would put me down for days. I couldn't, couldn't recover as quickly as a lot of other people. And that's, you know, not because I have a weak immune system. It's because I just hadn't been exposed to the flus that they were experiencing. They had a really bad flu season when I was there. And I had to be extremely careful to not catch whatever they had because the flu vaccines that I had had in the UK were not going to help me in the US because it was not the same flu. So uh, all that to say, there's there's a reason that um, we have to be very careful with spreading disease. There's a reason that there's a there's a reason that the history books hushed up the fact that white Europeans spread disease to native people in the US because yes. it was reckless and dangerous. Um, but the same can be said for things like refugee camps and people being displaced to other countries. You know, it's not an ideal situation. You don't choose to be in a refugee camp. But, you know, overcrowding means that all these different people, all this mixing pot of people are pushed together in close quarters. And it means that, you know, disease is going to spread there and there's there's not a whole lot that can be done besides you know trying to support the community as best you can if you're in one of those places environmental conditions is an interesting one i wondered if you had any thoughts on that like how environmental conditions can play a, a part in public health so my vague memories from GCSE <laughs> science mm -hmm. that most bacteria, uh, most, most microorganisms thrive in warm and damp places. Yeah. So if you are going somewhere that is warmer and damper than you are used to, then that first off, there's going to be more. I, I would imagine you're going to encounter more, uh, sort of more pathogens in a yeah in a marsh or a bog mm -hmm. than you would in the antarctic i guess yeah, true. um but also more generally if you're somewhere that is perpetually rainy for example mm. it's going to be difficult to keep dry and therefore you're going to go i mean trench foot right like right that's kind of the most obvious example um you know if you're if you're a soldier or um you know field medic or something then mm -hmm. you're going to be you're going to run into those problems yeah definitely um, yeah um and then i would also say I, I guess i should have made this clearer at the start but public health isn't just things that you get from infections right it's also mm. things to do with mental health cancers mm, true. um you know all those kind of things so to get to your point yeah wet damp warm places are going to have more 
chance, especially if you're living in conditions where, you know, you maybe don't have a stable accommodation or you don't have um, access to clean running water, things like that. It's going to become very easy to, to you know, cut yourself or, or end up with some kind of injury that results in you getting an infection. Yeah. But also things like heat stroke. Mm. If you're not used to the climate, heat stroke is going to become a big issue or you know in cold environments hypothermia pneumonia those kind of diseases that target the human body when it is too hot or too cold dehydration for example is mm. a big one if you're not used to sweating so much because you know you're outside and and you're working whatever you're whatever you're doing in a wartime context um all these things could mean that you're your body's compromised and, and as soon as your body becomes compromised your immune system will take a real hit so yeah yeah so. i suppose also temperature um and you know weather in general if it's something that's going to stop you sleeping then you're also going to be at a disadvantage yeah exactly um, i can't imagine so if you're that there's going to be a lot of comfy beds when you're on the <laughs> yeah. war front you know and no like i don't know electric fan to keep you cool at night you know mm-hmm. if you're you know, it doesn't matter, you know, wherever you happen to be, if you're in the middle of a desert or something, whatever it is that's right. going to stop you sleeping or... Also, I guess, um, I, I don't know whether this counts as environmental conditions, but, f- like, food, like, what food you have access to. Yeah. Um, what food grows in a particular place. If it's... Either if you can't get enough food, you can't get enough nutritious food, or even the sort of psychological impacts of not having food you're used to mm-hmm. or not having even just not having food that your body's used to that you're sort of um you know kind of messes you up in the same way as like whether you're not used to temperatures you're not used to yeah exactly right yeah I hadn't written that down but that is a really good point you know if you are eating a diet of so let's think of the UK, you know, we have a lot of sort of potatoes and starches and things like that. But yeah. if you're in somewhat, if you're somewhere that the primary starch or primary sort of roughage is rice or corn or maize or, you know, that's going to, that's a different thing to digest. That's a very different yeah. thing to digest. So yeah, you're right. It's, definitely going to have an impact and you know it it may not have been considered in the historical context or even in a war context but you know depending on what your intolerances are you know gluten intolerance and dairy intolerance are like huge things and you know we're only really realizing it now recently that you know giving people giving everyone pasta isn't going to cut it because some people are just (laughs) not going to be able to digest that so yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a big impact to do with uh, like local foods and things like that. Also, um, to do with like spices. The UK has a very bland palate. Yeah, which which you appreciate, but it disappoints me. So. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, if you're going to somewhere, or even the opposite, you know, if if someone from because uh, in World War Two, a lot of um, people from India were moved to Europe um again colonization of India by the British Empire but but yeah so obviously their the way that they consumed food was different 
in their home country than in Europe and the UK, which a lot of herbs and spices have very health beneficial properties. There's a lot of like turmeric, for example, is anti-inflammatory. So if you're used to a diet with lots of um, spices and herbs that, you know, inadvertently supplement your immune system, and then all of a sudden you're just getting right uh, veg and potatoes and and gravy and a meat, then it's not it's not going to cut it. It's not going to be the you know it's not going to it's not going to do. So yes, that is actually a very good point. And also, you know, malnutrition in general. Of course, yeah. If the food quality is is poor, then everybody's gonna have a hard time with that so now we get onto the more sort of specifically war related things and that is um dead bodies they present a contamination risk because their juices can get into the water system <laughs> um <laughs> i don't know how to phrase that in corpse juice <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it is literally like putrefied human can enter the water table enter the soil um and especially in places where it isn't possible to you know bury and and dispose of the dead properly uh, as we see in wartime in historical wartime that is uh obviously it does it does depend on the specific war you know sometimes there's battlefields and then sometimes it's more you know urban so there, there are differences in, in that. But for the most part, you know, having a dead body around isn't really a great thing. And especially historically, because physicians would be trying to save someone, they would die, they would deal with that dead body, touch, 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 and then they would go on to the next person and touch, touch, touch their wounds. Mm. Um, not ideal. And as we know now, uh washing your hands is really important did you know that washing your hands was really important um so obviously that comes as a standard but you know before we learned this we didn't know you know if you didn't know you didn't know you're just trying to save some lives so washing your hands uh of dead body juice is a good thing to do uh as we learned from war uh, historical war um and that was also highlighted in things like battle uh, battlefield surgery and injuries that resulted in infections a very significant amount of time like i want to say like 90 percent of the time but that might be a bold overstatement so injuries amputations so amputations first of all let's get into a little bit i was reading i got down a rabbit hole about <laughs> battlefield surgery and like battlefield disease and it's so interesting i mean it was horrible let's be real so many people died as a result of decisions made during war to try and save a life didn't work out it's really quite horrifying and makes me a bit anxious actually to think about but i learned that the standard practice was to just bandage the wound, first of all. And then as our knowledge progressed to do with infection and disease and sepsis and things like that, then they moved on to amputations because they were like, if we cut the limb off, we can sterilise that one surface area and we'll be good to go. 
right? Mm. So instead of bandaging the wound and letting it fester, uh, which they thought, which they then used leeches on and so on and so forth, we, you know, that historical we've heard of how they would treat battlefield wounds and things, then they moved on to amputations. And I'm talking everything. They would amputate, amputate every injury. It doesn't matter what it was, amputate, get rid of the, get rid of the injured area because they were in such a rush to, to help as many people as possible that they were just mm. like, just do what needs to be done, get on to the next person. And obviously with those kind of surgeries, a lot of blood, a lot of contaminated fluid, then you'd move on to the next person, amputate with the same sore. You know, you can see why there would be a, a bit of a contamination issue. A lot of health issues arose from these kind of practices. Um, and I read a study that said there are actually still many similarities between modern war injuries and historic war injuries mm-hmm. because all wounds are susceptible to the same st- soil and the same skin bacteria that they were, you know, way back when in the 1940s and even before that for World War One. You know, it was still, there's still a lot of similarities between, you know, doing an amputation and getting this injury, getting this infection and getting an injury nowadays and having an amputation and getting the same infection it's it's actually quite common to i mean mm. if you think about it you are literally removing a large portion of skin and flesh that you're then just exposing to the world it's never seen the world before and you're just exposing it so clearly there's going to be some issues with sanitation from that respect and as I said before refugee camps displacement of people barracks and you know soldiers living quarters very close quarters lack of quarantining for contagious diseases there's you know you're living in a dorm room with 20 other people if one of you gets a cold you're all probably going to get a cold but apply that to things like cholera or whatever other diseases tuberculosis even pneumonia those are all gonna be spread sanitation of waste also means that you know if one person's going to the toilet and they've got diarrhea then if you're not sanitizing your waste properly you're not removing your waste properly people are going to catch that it's going to get into the like i said the water table it's going to get into the soil if you're getting the same person to clean the toilets as you are to cook the meals then washing your hands is important you know, if you're sharing duties with multiple areas of the camp, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of cross-contamination. And that also leads on to things like food poisoning. If you're cooking a big vat of whatever you're cooking and it's not cooked properly all the way through because it's such a large volume, it's, if it's got meat in it, if it's been sitting out for days, you don't have refrigeration, you know, you don't know, you know, whatever conditions it is, especially historically, if you don't have a fridge to plug in, then there's going to be lots of opportunities for disease. And, and if everyone's eating the same thing, everyone gets sick at once. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So as you can probably tell, and a lot of the papers that I read started off with some kind of gimmicky line, like there were more deaths than ever seen and that was before the first bullet was fired because you know disease it would kill people indiscriminately there would there would be no sides you know you you just get sick and 
this in general had a huge impact on the health of all communities because when you think about the people that survived and the people that then came back from those countries that they were in or you know from fighting in their home country they would return to their community and they've spread their disease back to the community but then also as we move to the present and obviously our treatment of diseases has become so much more improved we've got to think about the public health in relation to mental illness Mm. and we've got to think about public health in relation to things like exposure to toxins and all that kind of stuff which further impacts public health you know what is it like nuclear nuclear warfare has meant that many people walk away with horrible cancers and they end up having children that have horrible cancers because they were exposed to something that you know they may not have been the soldiers they may have just been the civilians that were in the area and they're still exposed um as well as you know people having ptsd like any kind of ptsd ptsd related disorders because they're what post-traumatic stress disorders it's a whole range um because they're also public health issues they're health related issues and historically we didn't consider them as such right people were just sent home and that was it but there's a reason that many people who were in the military couldn't sustain another civilian like a civilian life Mm. um and it is down to sort of the conditioning and the the resulted trauma from going to war. So further, even further from the historical war is the fact that there are other complications resulting from mortality. I wondered if you could think of any. So if you're not, if people aren't dying in war, what could be other resulting mortalities? Other resulting mortalities? Mm-hmm. Um, the impact on families, say, if you're, you know, say you have one person, you know, say the husband goes off to fight and then you've got, you know, a wife and children at home with no means of earning money, food, depending, obviously, we're talking historical. Yes, historical. Um, mm-hmm. Stuff for this for this episode so periods of time when women couldn't work for example Mm -hmm. or had very very limited options for work which is not to say that it's going to be easy being a single parent now but like you know especially yeah your options for for working are limited Mm -hmm. you know it's going to lead to all kinds of things you know malnutrition and all kinds of stuff basically everything that poverty brings yes um plus the mental health effects of of grief Mm -hmm. um uh, when you had, you, you, I mean, you've mentioned people coming back with, um, with uh, diseases they picked up from, um, you know, wherever they've been sent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, there's there's that, but also the people coming back with, either with, you know, horrific stories of what's happened to them that then mm-hmm. affect the mental health of the of the whole community because mm-hmm. they understandably need to talk about it, but. Um, you know, you've then got people hearing about all kinds of things that are going to 
right. causing kinds of mental health problems in that regard, but also people who can't talk about it. Um, mm. the, the kind of training that soldiers have to go through trying to adjust back to civilian life um, is going to, especially without any kind of support, is going to take a toll mm-hmm. on them, on their families, on their communities, which, you know, these sorts of things uh, create cycles um, yeah. that, you know, you know, you have someone coming back and the way they interact with their children has changed and then their children grow up have children the way they interact with their children is affected by yeah right, you know exactly. etc um and again the ways that you know i mean we, we you know we know that trauma has impacts on people's physical health as well as their mental health but also people's mental health affects their physical health you know mm. there are physical symptoms to a lot of these things um or it affects people's ability to take care of themselves to take care of others etc mm-hmm. um that's what comes to mind yeah and i will say as well to add on to all those very good points is the fact that the disease profile of a country is gonna change right Mm, yes so like you may see this population has this disease um so if we're talking about the uk you know young people in the uk would see this disease and then as you age you would see this disease and then the elderly see this disease you know if you're coming back from First of all, the population demographic has changed because you've lost a bunch of young men um, historically Um, or the young men returning either are suffering from an ailment as a result of an injury or suffering from an ailment as a result of disease or suffering from an ailment as a result of mental health. So that presents a whole load of impacts as you mentioned all the different impacts but it also means that the if you're not dying from an infection on the battlefield you're returning home and then you may end up developing diseases such as cancer or um, pneumonia or any other kind of age-related disease uh, latent tuberculosis so the so if we think about you know the first historical wars people would be just dying on the battlefield. That's it. They don't, nobody return. Very few people return home. If they do return home, then um, they might have some injuries. They might have some disease. But as we improved our treatment and more people returned home, the, the public health sort of pattern means that, you know, the, the mortality demographics changed so there were people more people living to an older age you know we talk about improving the age of our populations and things like that due to medical advances but that was that has also been impacted by war you know we haven't had uh, in the uk we haven't experienced war um the way we did in in world war ii Mm. obviously it's been what nearly nearly well 80 plus years is that right Mm. yeah so i think so yeah a lot of uh the people that would have gone to war maybe and and died for for whatever reason are now living to a ripe old age right Mm. so if we compare 1940s uk to 2020 uk um one would hope that we weren't seeing as much poverty we're just seeing a different kind of poverty i suppose now but 
Um, but yeah, the impacts of of war for us is very, very different. Yeah. And as we know from the news, the impacts of war um, is actually not different for a lot of people in the modern age. There are many places, first of all, that are, I won't say poverty-stricken, because that indicates that it wasn't somebody else's doing, but we know from the most part that a lot of places, the reason that they are in this in a state of poverty is as a result of being taken advantage of, either by the US or the British Empire when it was the British Empire or, you know, all those kind of things. There's mm. a lot of... I don't think I'm qualified enough to explain all the intricacies of all the... Um, the things that we have been impacted by colonization but um but i can speak to disease and if we know anything as a result of coronavirus we know that our disease profile as a planet has changed right because we're moving around more we're traveling and you know, water is becoming more accessible in some places. It's becoming better. You know, we're, we're more able to know what is better for our health. And we're more able to make decisions based on what is best for our health. So the public health in general of the planet has also changed quite significantly. Um, and I will mention that next episode... I'm going to be talking about the current climate in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about the reason for their um, civil unrest. I think they would call it civil unrest. I mean, it's horrible because it's I, unrest. It doesn't feel like a strong enough word, but mm-hmm. it is sort of civil it's almost a civil war. It's lots of factions within the country and also factions from outside of Yemen coming right. together to basically cause a massive amount of damage to the country. Um, so we're going to talk about modern public health and how that is impacted and how that is impacting Yemen. So, yeah. But I wondered if you had any questions about historical public health or historical public health and war. Hmm. I suppose I'm really interested in the, um, so the, I'm very much not a historian, but when it comes to the, the, the literature, the historical literature that I like most of it comes from the um, sort of 18 to 1900s, uh, mm-hmm. but I also really like the medieval period. So I'm curious if you have anything if you've come across anything interesting from either of those periods, I'm thinking kind of, you know, the Romantic era, you've got Keats with tuberculosis, um, mm. but were there any, you know, at the time, you know, you've got sort of the French Revolution just before that, for example, um, or the medieval period. Is it the medieval period that, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, no, but I've do. just remembered a story and I don't remember where it took place or mm-hmm. anything about it. I think it's medieval, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. that involved the first instance of biological warfare Ooh. because of some there was the siege and they were catapulting corpses yes. over the the walls of the castle or whatever i do you do you know where that's from because i've heard that story and i hope it's 
I don't hope it's true because people died, but for the sake of the story. <laughs> um, I don't know if I know that specific story, but I do know another story that I can talk about. But yeah, let's let's just do a quick biological warfare rundown because yeah. in this is something that I was super interested in in uh, high school. Uh, mm. I mean, not not a usual thing to be interested in, but um, but I'm I'm interested in uh, zombies and a lot of the stuff that I read in high school was related to um, someone purposefully releasing a disease that caused X, Y, Z, which is obviously biological warfare. So I'm not super well-versed on chemical agents as biological warfare in terms of like chemicals being used to cause biological symptoms. I know that that was a huge issue in i can't remember where it was um but there was was it called like uh agent orange or something sounds familiar yeah something like that i'm not super well versed on it but i can um link an article in the references i'll be able to find an article on on that context if people are interested in that but yeah basically using disease to overcome the enemy um to to cause the enemy to uh back down or to wipe out the enemy but yes in medieval times even then they understood that dead bodies were not something that you should be um allowing to rot and then touching because touching a dead body in itself isn't something that is should you know people people do that all the time it's it's not you're not necessarily going to get sick from doing that um it's the fact that bodies would be left in the heat and the sun Mm. and they would not be washed or cleaned or wrapped in fresh cloth or anything like that which many people in many societies do as signs of respect for the dead they'll just be left and they would have open wounds and they would be seeping and yeah not not great um, but yeah, there are instances where those would be used as um, either bait for wild animals or um, as you said, catapulted places and used to spread disease. It's interesting the way that we, like the way the sort of basic pattern recognition served us really well in some Mm. instances and not at all in others like how on earth were people doing like if you've got sort of medieval you know like oh if we catapult these corpses over you know you know into this castle we're trying to siege then they'll get sick like we think we like we may not know why but we figured out that that's gonna that's gonna happen and yet then you've got people you know in the 20th century and 21st yeah the 20th century um trying you know doing an amputation and not cleaning the sore in between how like how is humanity both so stupid at the same time (laughs) well it's like um people arguing about wearing a mask right Mm. it's like it's been shown that it works so but it's not even just about like there being scientific evidence even just anecdotal evidence like i can almost understand that if you personally you know like i can't i don't know from any 
personal experience that wearing a mask works right i i i mm. I, I trust the scientists who say it does mm-hmm. um and you know there are studies that show this sort of thing but i don't you know i've never never been through a pandemic yeah right I, I don't, i've never witnessed it myself but you know you can it's easy to imagine people like even just not washing your hands right Right. You're going to notice over the course of your life that people who don't wash their hands as often get sick more often. Yeah, right. And yet, like, think about so children, long. like small children that eat yeah. random dirt and stuff. You know. <laughs> and yet, you know, when I don't remember which which scientist it was, but the guy who like noticed sepsis in mm-hmm. hospitals, and you know, was the one who was like, maybe doctors should wash their hands in between um yeah pregnant it was uh, delivering babies and touching yes. cadavers mm-hmm. exactly yes and he got laughed at for it yeah. like how have you not noticed this i don't understand how no one kind he of got went... completely discredited exactly and it's like but that's that's common sense he's making an observation how has nobody else made this observation and yet people had figured out all kinds of other stuff right like it's along the same lines as the the only other example i can think of right now is things like lobotomies like yeah why would you lobotomize someone when clearly all the evidence shows that it didn't work it just caused horrific damage like yeah people people do things even though the evidence contradicts exactly what they're saying and there's all kinds of other stuff that people used to do where i i understand why they would do it right Mm. like if you bloodletting for example yeah or like um you know i don't know magic spells right you mm, do a chanting. spell mm-hmm. but you also do something else at the same time you don't know which one worked you know mm-hmm. it's like imagine if every time we took ibuprofen we also had to say a magic word right you're not and, and you, yeah. you just never noticed but like, you don't want to not do well, it. it worked yeah it worked i don't know whether, mm-hmm. it, whether it was the magic words or the ibuprofen so i'm just going to do both because i don't want to be in pain yeah like, exactly. i understand that kind of logic and how people would carry on doing something that doesn't help because they have they're not you know they don't know which bit of what they're doing is the bit that's working mm. but to just keep on doing something that's just not working proven to be completely but that wrong. seems to be what people have been doing throughout history there are so many instances of people just continually yeah doing stuff that is very clearly not working and it's like again how, why do we think that we are the superior species <laughs> we may never know we may we may never know (laughs) but um but yeah the one instance of um i don't know if you would call it biological warfare but um but war having the impact on health in medieval times was Mm -hmm. there was a paper published or there was a some kind of report published that said that there was a siege that took place and the the people who had see uh laying the siege <laughs> is that the right terminology um i think so do you i guess you could lay a se- yeah let's just lay the siege um it was being <laughs> laid and the people inside this i'm thinking castle with a wall around it classic medieval on a hill yeah yeah um so the people inside there they all just died and and the people laying the siege didn't didn't really know why they you know they broke down the door eventually and everyone was dead they hadn't starved to death they hadn't you know um killed each other as a result of some kind of other disagreement they'd all died and 
they thought that it was as a result of uh, some kind of other disease, just that someone had had, have someone had had something and they'd been sick. Maybe, I think it might have been tuberculosis. You know, it's always tuberculosis. Um, but I will find the, the paper that was written and they used modern genome sequencing technology to find out what caused everyone to die what disease they uh-huh. literally had like bone marrow samples and like those like bone samples that they tested um it might even have been syphilis or something like that where everyone ended up being infected and because they were obviously trapped inside this castle inside these castle walls no way to get in no way to get out um and yeah the whole population ended up dead Christ. You know, it's just occurred to me, with so many people dying in such weird, horrific circumstances, it's really a wonder that the population is so large and so diverse. <laughs> yeah. You know? Because mm. that's a whole community of people that died, right? What? So that line, those bloodlines of people n- no longer exist. Can you imagine if we'd got on top of public health sooner? We would have reached... A population of seven billion way sooner. <laughs> uh, yeah. Man. Yeah. Diverse population, but still spreading disease to each other. We never learn. But yeah, biological warfare is very interesting um, and also quite scary. Yes. Because it's not. It's not like something. It's not like a gun where you can see it. It's much more insidious than that. Um, and from an epidemiology standpoint, it's, yeah, it's incredibly interesting because you basically would have to use epidemiology to work out which population you were trying to target, right? Because you'd have to capitalise on various risk factors that influence a certain group of people or a certain community yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, it's some interesting stuff. I wonder if you had any more questions or not. Don't believe so. I think we're at about the right time to wrap up. Yeah. So um, obviously next episode, immediately next episode is Autumn Journal Part 3. Is it Part 3? Exciting. I believe so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, And this episode is coming out after Christmas. So I hope everyone had a good winter holiday. And yeah, the next yeah the next episode comes out in the new year. Wow! Will twenty twenty one? We've been doing this for nearly a year. Oh yeah! Our first episode came out on oh it was on Valentine's Day ah. um, of twenty twenty. That's amazing. So, we'll have to uh, yeah do something to commemorate. I don't know what yet, but Autumn Journal Part Four will come out on Valentine's Day of twenty twenty one. Wow, that would be our year anniversary. For sparking connections and we're still on our same bullshit ah <laughs> 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 uh, we've done it another episode another why are my episodes so sad oh but yeah it's because you've chosen a degree that involves something that kills people yeah that's true i won't say that that was one of the many reasons why i chose it but the option is the, the suggestion is there you, you also haven't said that it's not. Yeah, 
You can pick up what I'm putting down if you want to. <laughs> but seriously, uh, wartime has affected public health, obviously, and we will continue to delve into how that's doing so in a modern sense. But next time, Autumn Journal Part 3. Can you recall what Autumn Journal Part 3 was about? Or We recorded that a long time ago. We did. Uh... <laughs> No, I cannot recall. <laughs> well, we'll be doing some more cantos uh, for Autumn Journal. Um, it's part three of four. So uh, it's not super necessary to listen to the other other episodes, but it definitely would help, I think. Yeah, um, you would be jumping straight into the... Uh, uh, yes, Autumn Journal part three. You would be jumping straight into the middle of the poem. Yes. With no... Uh, <laughs> no background so i would recommend starting from the beginning yes if you can um, be bothered no pressure do what you like listen to listen to all our episodes backwards i don't care <laughs> yeah they're, they're gonna be there for till the end of time so <laughs> um but yeah and since it's our year anniversary maybe everybody should go back and listen to all our episodes you know because the longer you get from a year the more episodes we're gonna have so it's gonna be harder to catch up right that's true so Maybe everyone should go and listen to all our episodes and catch up before it's too late. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening and we will speak to you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to Sparking Connections. For references and further information, find the show notes at anchor.fm slash sparkingconnections or at my website, pleaseholdfor.squarespace.com where you will also find transcripts and links to find us elsewhere on the internet. If you have any questions or comments, then email us at sparkingconnectionspodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment below the episode. 